0: landscape in America is busted Americans are on to the emissions the half-truths and the outright lies being propagated against we the people your hosts dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harrison will bring you the other side of the story
1: Biden administration has been engaged in a full-blown government war on the fossil fuel industries. We have seen cancellation of pipelines, the Keystone XL from Canada, being a prime example. We have seen the ending of leasing of mineral rights on government lands and offshore. Biden has ordered that all government agencies work through regulation to eliminate fossil fuels from electricity generation by 2035. We have seen threats by bank regulators against banks that lend to fossil fuel industry. And how about the initiatives by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission to make it harder and more expensive for industries to use fossil fuels? And there have been dozens of initiatives in places like the Department of Energy and Interior Department to halt projects using fossil fuels or to make them more difficult or costly. And this is just the tip of Biden's anti-fossil fuel agenda. So, Jay, if this continues, where is America headed?
2: Well, we're headed to being a third world country as a result of not having adequate energy to absorb the advances in lifestyle that uh, fossil fuels allow us.
1: hmm. Well, you know, to discuss all this, we have a guest today. He's Steve Gorham, Executive Director of the Climate Science Coalition of America and author of three books on energy, climate change, and sustainable development, over 100,000 copies in print. His latest book is Outside the Green Box, Rethinking Sustainable Development. Steve holds an MBA from the University of Chicago and bachelor and master's degrees in Electrical Engineering from the University of Illinois, and he has a very exciting book coming out in the second quarter of 2023. Today on America Out Loud, and I'll include a link to it when this goes to podcast on Monday, we have an article doing a book review, basically, of Steve's amazing book. So first of all, welcome to the show, Steve. Hey, guys. uh, Happy holiday. Merry Christmas. So what's your tentative title for your new book?
3: Green Breakdown. The coming renewable energy failure, a lot of folks think we can get to net zero by 2050 and that we can eliminate carbon dioxide from all of our processes, which is basically everything we do. Uh, That is not going to happen. Uh, It's just it's going to break down rising costs, uh, electricity blackouts, fuel shortages, uh, energy shocks, like we're seeing now in Europe, Uh, and we're in the midst of a a global energy shock that's uh, Europe-centered Those things are going to get people to rethink uh, the green plans. And then beyond that, it's very likely we could enter a a period of cooling over the next uh, few decades uh, rather than the global warming that many are predicting. So uh, we're going to have a green breakdown and eventually people are going to turn back to hydrocarbon energy and nuclear power and and do things that are
1: are always on and reliable. Yeah. Do you think that the troubles they're having in Europe will have to come to North America before we wake up?
4: (laughs)
3: I do think so. I do think people are going to have to uh, learn the hard way. We've seen uh, a little bit that we can discuss a little bit later about what's happened in Texas and California and Oklahoma with some of the energy blackouts. The Northeast uh, United States uh, may have a very perilous winter here in terms of costs and possibly shortages. And to the extent that governments... uh, take out the coal plants, take out the natural gas plants, shut down the nuclear plants, and try and replace them with intermittent sources, Uh, we're going to be more and more prone for system failure, and eventually people are going to say, hey, you know, we really ought to (laughs) get back to what works.
1: Yeah, except by then, of course, if they've closed down these stations, they don't open them up in a week, do they? Well, that's
3: right. I mean, uh, Europe, for example, is, is uh, is in a world of trouble right now uh they are uh, we have a worldwide uh, natural gas shortage and so and they have not they have not produced much natural gas for many years they've been phasing it out and so they are really paying for it now and i'm sure we'll get into that a little bit
1: yeah for
2: sure i was not fortunate enough to uh go to the conference of parties 27 which was the 27th major uh conference In fact, the intent of the conference was to essentially teach the world how to survive without fossil fuels. It's hard to believe that so much wrong thinking could uh, work against the progress that mankind has made with the development of uh, hydrocarbons, the development of various chemical compounds that fuel our world.
1: Yeah. So, Steve, what do you think of COP27, the recent climate and energy conference? Because it really is, to some extent, an energy conference in Egypt. I mean, what's your view of that whole conference?
3: Yeah. So, Jay is right. It's the 27th conference of the parties. And if we all live long enough, we'll see the 50th, the COP50. <laughs> <laughs> they do, these pretty much, do this pretty much every year. And uh, uh, something like uh, more than 33,000 people gathered in Egypt and hundreds of private flights and a lot of other things. And it's uh, uh, these folks, uh, the United Nations and the people that come to these conferences get together every year and go to great places like Scotland and Cancun and all sorts of fun places, get together and meet. And as Jay says, they're trying to figure out how to get rid of uh, hydrocarbon fuels. And, as they, and they think they have the ability to limit uh, global warming to a degree and a half Celsius. It's kind of crazy. It is, uh, it's unlikely to have an effect on on uh, anything actually. actually, the, the the data shows that that uh, natural factors, not human emissions, dominate uh,
1: global temperatures. We're right. And so what what is your general thesis as to why humans cannot control global temperature? Right. so if
3: if you look at the greenhouse effect, which is what is blamed for for dangerous global warming, sunlight enters our atmosphere. Uh, What isn't reflected by clouds is absorbed by the surface of the Earth. And the Earth, like any warm body, gives off a lower uh, energy, infrared radiation, uh, that we're not able to see. A tiny amount of that escapes directly out in the atmosphere, but most is captured by greenhouse gases in our atmosphere. And those gases then re-radiate that energy. And that does tend to warm the surface of the Earth. Yeah, because some Uh, of it
1: goes back down.
3: Right, but it is overwhelmingly a natural factor. What I do when I speak to groups is ask them, you know, what's Earth's dominant greenhouse gas? And a lot of people say, well, it's carbon dioxide, or they'll say methane. But the answer actually is water vapor. Mm -hmm. Water vapor causes somewhere between 70 and 95% of Earth's greenhouse effect, Uh, the combination of water vapor and clouds. And so if we break down the greenhouse effect and we say, okay, let's be conservative, we'll say 75% is due to water vapor and clouds. Then the last quarter is mostly due to carbon dioxide and methane and some other gases. But then if you look at that last quarter and you say, well, how much is due to nature and how much much is due to our industry, uh, you need to consider that because the oceans have about 50 times as much carbon dioxide dissolved has the atmosphere and the oceans are always releasing co2 and absorbing it uh, when plants die carbon dioxide is released and when they grow carbon dioxide is absorbed from the atmosphere and then we have volcanoes both above the surface of the ocean and about 10 times as many under the ocean putting carbon dioxide and other gases into the environment all the
1: time sorry to interrupt but that's that's amazing so we have more volcanoes under the ocean we do. That's what scientists huh. think. Than we do wow. on the surface.
4: Wow.
3: And uh, yeah, we have some. You know, I have some uh, diver friends, and they they show they uh, show you pictures of uh, CO2 vents in the surface of the of the ocean, and they're too warm for a diver to put their hand over, but they're releasing carbon dioxide into the ocean. By the way, all the uh, all the coral and the plants right next to those vents is is usually growing very very well. It's not a negative oh, wow. thing yeah but when you so when you roll this all together, you every day you, you find out that every day nature puts twenty times as much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere as all of Earth's industries and absorbs about the same amount out of the atmosphere.-huh And so that means that human industry is only responsible for about one or two parts per one hundred of Earth's greenhouse effect, a mm-hmm. very, very wow. small amount. Right. That means if we eliminate oil emissions we probably will not be able to measure
1: the difference in global temperatures. <laughs> For that we're spending I think it's a billion US dollars a day according to the climate Yeah, it's over it's uh, over 500 oxygen. billion a year.
3: Right. It's it very may. very big. <laughs> and so and so it's unlikely that even if we were to eliminate all carbon dioxide emissions that we would be able to measure the difference in global temperatures. I think mm-hmm. that's what the data says. Yeah. but the folks at the cop twenty seven all think that they've got this knob if they if they get rid of c o two they can they can uh, uh control global temperatures but it it really is uh you know it's human arrogance in many many ways and and it ignores all the natural factors that are out there
1: well you said that climate fears are all about one degree what do you mean by that right if if uh uh well i've had uh, for example, I had
3: uh, some a uh, couple of girl students at UCLA call me up and, and do an interview, and soon I was asking them questions. And I said, well, how much do you think temperatures have risen in the last 140 years? And the reason you choose 140 years is that's when we first had the first modern thermometers. Okay. Well, one of, the, one of the young ladies guessed 5 degrees, another one guessed 10 degrees. <laughs> yeah. But the answer, the answer is 1 degree Celsius uh, since 1880. Yeah, so that's, all we, that's all we've had in global temperature rise, and we've got all sorts of nations doing handsprings over that. And if you look back in history, if you look at uh, temperature proxies, uh, which are ox- oxygen isotopes and tree rings and a lot of other things, you find that there were many periods that were centuries long over the last 10,000 years when it was warmer than it is today. Yeah, And that was,
4: that was long yeah, what-
3: before we had power, power plants or sport utility vehicles
1: yeah, what they're all saying from what I see is that, yeah, yeah, that's true, but the temperature rise has been extremely quick. Well, it strikes me that a one degree rise in one hundred and forty years, I don't think we even feel that, would we?
3: <laughs> yeah, we get that every morning between nine and ten a m. so <laughs> so it it really is crazy. and and um, and many scientists now are predicting we're going to enter a period of global cooling. Matter of fact, the satellite data from the University of Alabama Huntsville shows that we have had a, a slight temperature decline over the last six years or so since mm-hmm. 2016. Very difficult to predict global temperatures, but it's sure going to be interesting if the temperatures start falling, and then all the folks are going to say,
4: "Hmm,
1: yeah, <laughs> Maybe well, we're not doing be... what we think we are." Well, they'll need a lot more energy, that's for sure, and they'll have turned yes, off they will. many of the energy sources. So, Jay, you you think that in fact the the impact of humans on climate is almost well, essentially nothing.
2: <laughs> well, that is obviously true, uh, Steve, and it isn't hard to explain to people's common sense that there's absolutely nothing mankind can do uh, on our little blue planet that is going to have an impact on the temperature of the planet. I mean, and it's kind of amazing how arrogant mankind is when we decided uh, some many decades ago that the public mankind actually plays a role in the temperature of the planet. I'm sure if we were to go back a few centuries ago, it would be difficult to convince anybody that the temperature of the planet was impacted by man. I mean. And yet we, uh, we spend a huge amount of money and time trying to figure out what man's impact is on the, the temperature of the planet. Uh, this basically was a program to get research money and uh, pour money uh, into a pot to say that we do have a, uh, an impact and that it's significant when in fact we have essentially no impact whatsoever. Mm
0: -hmm. But it
2: really all started with uh, research scientists deciding this was a great source of money, uh, that the research scientists could uh, go to the federal government, first of all, create a scare, that always uh, does something worthwhile, and uh, convince the public that we need to study it just in case Something bad was going to happen as a result.
1: Mm-hmm. Steve, I understand that despite all this, transitions away from coal, oil, and natural gas—they're well underway, aren't they?
3: Well, there's the, uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot being done, but when you look at the data, another another one of my favorite charts is you can take data from the. Um, the International Energy Agency that keeps track of of, uh, the the energy that's being consumed. And I'd like to put up a chart that shows sort of the history of uh, energy use and the share of hydrocarbons of world energy uh, use. And the chart shows a little bit of a timeline. It shows the United Nations forming the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 1989. Uh, The world signed the Kyoto Protocol Climate Treaty in 1997. And more than 180 nations uh, signed up and said they were, they were signatories to that uh, treaty, and many of them said they, they were going to reduce their CO2 emissions. And now we have almost we have about 300,000 wind turbines installed worldwide. But if you look at the, the data from the, the International Energy Agency, uh, we're still getting about 81% of our hydrocarbons, uh, of our energy from hydrocarbons, coal, oil, and gas. That was in 2018. And that was the same as in 1991.
4: Huh, wow! <laughs> uh, you know,
3: 27 years ago or so, so we are uh, the world continues to use more and more energy. Uh, global energy use, Jay was talking about a little bit since 1800 is up 26 times from 1800, and it's still dominated by hydrocarbons. Huh. Um, wind and solar is is very very
1: small. Mm. So, so in fact, the transition to wind and solar is not happening as like they say i mean they keep telling us that it's taking more and more of the percentage of the world's energy but that's just not true
3: it isn't really if you take every year and again this data would be from uh uh, bp world energy Mm -hmm. Um, every year the world has been rising global consumption of energy except for the COVID year but it's it's rising again and we had about a united kingdom worth of additional energy consumption every year Mm -hmm. And we've never had a year when renewables have increased enough to supply just for the increase Mm. uh, in in world consumption every year. That has never happened yet, let alone replace our traditional energy sources. So we're a long, long way from anything that's going to be renewables-based, despite all the hype
1: that you get in the press. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that you've a statement you've made that I find hard to understand, and I think our listeners would be very interested in this. You've said that green policies in Europe are a key reason for the current world energy crisis. So, how is that the case?
3: Yeah, so we're in the midst, and, and in the U.S. and Canada, maybe we don't see very much of it, but we're in the midst of a global energy crisis right now. Some of the headlines: uh, Bloomberg, Europe's energy crisis is coming for the rest of the world. Forbes, the energy crisis threatens the return of the 1970s inflation. Um, CNN, 80 million European households struggle to stay warm. Uh, Oilprice.com, commodity chaos is threatening the global economy. So uh, we're in the middle middle of an energy crisis, and typically the reasons have been given that We have COVID disruptions. Yeah, and the Ukraine war. (laughs) And the Ukraine war. Those are the two big reasons given. But underlying reasons that are even more important are first an underinvestment in oil and gas, and then the green energy policies. Mm -hmm. So as far as oil and gas, uh, what has been happening is the exploration and declining. uh, We have exploration and and drilling investment has been declining uh, for several years now, back in two thousand and ten, the world spent about uh, five hundred billion dollars on uh, exploration and drilling for oil and gas. Uh-huh. That rose to almost eight hundred billion in two thousand and fourteen and we went into a period where the prices got very low and, and so those those investments went down but it 's been declining since two thousand and fourteen. And in 2020, the COVID year, it got all the way down to 300 billion, less than half of, of what we were spending in 2014. Wow. And then we have uh, we have some folks like Fatih Birol, head of uh, the International Energy Agency, that's making statements like, "If governments are serious about the climate crisis, there can be no new investments in oil, gas, and coal from now on." Jeez. And and we have uh, we have uh, financial institutions that are. Uh, trying to restrict lending for oil and gas investment. So, what happened prior to the Ukraine invasion is: first, we had a recovery in world crude oil prices. Uh, they were at about uh, got down to about twenty dollars a barrel in, in April of twenty twenty. Uh, those roll uh, those rose all the way to about eighty dollars a barrel prior to the invasion of the Ukraine. And then the second thing was going on, particularly in Europe, is. Europe became very dependent on wind, solar, and imported natural gas.
1: Yeah, from Russia.
3: (laughs) There were, well, 23 European nations signed pledges saying we're going to shut down all our coal facilities. And more than 100 nuclear plants were closed in Europe over the last 15 years. Uh, 34 of those were in the United Kingdom and 30, 30 were closed in Germany. And so they became very dependent on wind and solar, for example... Uh, Italy, 48% gas, 15% wind and solar. Netherlands, 60% gas, 19% wind and solar. UK, 28% wind and solar, and 35% gas. And the gas was imported. A study was done by the European community in 2017 that said there are more than 40 European shale fields. There's a huge one that goes from the Baltic states all the way to England across northern Europe, yeah. And so there are oil and gas sh- shale fields all over Europe. Well, they have dr- they have drilled none of them, basically. Huh. And so by 20- 2021, Europe was importing 63% of their natural gas, and uh, just about half of that was from Russia. Bad mm-hmm. idea. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> and then sure. the, the next thing that happened was in 2021, the wind didn't blow much in Europe. We had a big wind shortfall. Uh, the uh, electricity output from wind in France, Germany, and UK was down 20 to 30 percent for the year in 2021. And and so what they did was they started burning natural gas and to replace the wind. And the inventories got very very low. And that caused Europe's natural gas prices to explode. Wow. Yeah. So the typical price of natural gas in Europe in 20 and 20 in 2020 and 2021 was about 13 to 18. Euros per megawatt hour. That's how they measure it.
4: Yeah.
3: Well, by, by December of 2021, that had gone up to 80 euros per megawatt hour, up by a factor of five.
4: Wow. And
3: that was, that was three months prior to the invasion of the Ukraine. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the Russians got into this, and we, we, this became a full-blown energy crisis worldwide. Um, Europe's uh, natural gas prices uh, doubled again again <laughs> and their electricity prices also went way way up for several months electricity prices in europe were up by a factor of 10 uh, over what they were in 2020 and 2021 and so you have this
1: this huge huge expense for both gas and electricity mm-hmm. okay that's really interesting steve we've got to go for a break our interviewee today is steve an electrical engineer And he's actually got a new book coming out that we're very excited about. It's called Green Breakdown, The Coming Renewable Energy Failure. So we'll be right back with Steve Gorham after the break.
5: Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Cold and flu season is here. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to minimize airborne viral threats? Well, now there is, and it's a povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray called CoFix RX. You might even say it's just what the doctor ordered. To reduce your chance of getting hurt, you wear a safety belt when you're driving. To limit sun damage, you wear sunscreen on the beach. CoFix RX is just like that. It's an additional layer of protection. It's sold by thousands of pharmacists and medical doctors nationwide. It's made right here in the USA. Again, it's a povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray. You've heard them talk about it here on the Outloud Network over and over again. Check out cofixrx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com for a retailer near you or use coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off at cofixrx.com. For 40 years, alarmists have been warning
1: of a climate catastrophe. Yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual, and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a made-in-America climate plan. A plan based on real science that responds to the real-world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure. A plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com
5: people often ask me malcolm how do we fight the corruption robert frost has said it best freedom lies in being bold well for six incredible years bold is america out loud welcome to the new era in communications America Out Loud Talk Radio. So, we're
1: back with Steve Gorham, an electrical engineer, executive director of the Climate Science Coalition of America, and the author of an exciting new book that we actually have an article about on America Out Loud right now. And I'll include a link to that uh, when this show goes to podcast. Now, Steve, just before the break, you were talking about the horrific situation developing in Europe. Can you say a little bit more about that?
3: Yeah, it really is. It really is a very sad situation. So uh, when your gas is up uh, five to eight times and your electricity is up five to ten times, that's a big, big problem. And so right now, uh, industries are shutting down in Europe. Uniper, the big uh, gas importer for Germany, uh, lost 18 billion euros in the first nine months of 2022. And the government took it over. And they expect, so they've they've nationalized it, but they expect the total bill for that is going to be like 80 billion euros that the government's going to have to bail out to keep that company going. Oh, man. Uh, Fertilizer uses uh, a lot of natural gas to produce nitrogen for fertilizer and to produce urea and other products. Those, uh, fertilizer production is down about 70% because they cannot make money producing it with the cost of natural gas. Uh, same thing with smelters, aluminum and zinc. To produce a ton of, uh, of aluminum requires about 15 uh, megawatt hours of electricity. Today, that costs 7,000 euros, and you can sell a ton of aluminum for only 2,500 euros.
4: Oh man! And so the
3: pr- the price of energy is three times the amount you can get be paid for it. Uh, we've had 20 steel plants close in Europe, so this is a tremendous impact on European industry. And then the people as well are having some issues. In Hungary, they are putting wood furnaces in all the schools because they're afraid they're not going to have natural gas. Yeah. Uh, they've shut off lights uh, to on the Eiffel Tower. They've shut off lights on monuments. They've established uh, temp- maximum temperatures uh, that you can, you can heat your house with in the winter. Uh, they've told Britons to, to uh, stop bathing to save energy. <laughs> or to shower with a friend. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know? And the British are facing a uh, four or $5,000 energy bills, uh, yeah. annual yeah. energy bills. These are very, very serious things. So uh, this is no laughing matter. And, and yeah. it's likely that Europe is going to have uh, – this is not going to go away quickly. They're going to have an energy crisis for many, many years now. And and they need to get get away from this idea that that wind, by the way, uh, you know, we've got these prices, let's just turn up the wind and solar. Well, that can't be done. Right.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: So they need to go back to something that works and, and get the prices down, do some fracking and do some other some other things that would help their economies.
1: I understand that Germany is talking about getting back into coal quite significantly.
3: Germany has restarted 28 coal fired power plants. Wow. And um uh they're they're drilling for more natural gas in norway they're drilling for more in netherlands uh so they are reacting because there's nothing else they can do but they're they're really concerned about running out the uk in particular uk can only store 1% of its natural gas usage it has very low storage levels so they are dependent on every other country in europe or anything they can import to try and keep both the electrical power going and and to keep uh ability to heat homes Mm-hmm. And they're in the middle of a cold snap right now, is descending on, on England. So a very, very tough time.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, and Jay, you were going to ask about something to do with the United States and the impact of all this on the U.S.
2: Well, I, I hate to use the word schadenfreude, but I think that's where we're uh, moving toward. Uh, Europe is in much worse shape uh, than we are. The uh, price of their natural gas is higher they have more of a uh, an argument against natural gas they're so much more strident, trying to do away with the uh, the natural gas in their countries and their communities and uh, I foresee that the average European country is going to suffer mightily from their reduction in the natural gas throughout Europe. They're losing traction in terms of producing natural gas and coal and of course uh, nuclear. They're very uh, anti-environmental and so that when they look out uh, at the fields where they're looking for more energy, they are going to recognize that uh, good power plants are going to be far behind what we have in the United States. Mm-hmm. Europe, happily, is far more liberal than the United States are. We are, uh, we're a little crazy like they are, but only a little crazy. They are.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's uh, good.
2: They fall on their swords for reasons that are uh, not in any way reasonable.
4: Mm -hmm. And
2: therefore, uh, the European Union is going to suffer uh, a great more uh, at the feet of wrongheaded uh, politics.
1: And yet, Steve, we're seeing a massive movement of states and businesses towards this so-called net zero energy by 2050. But you don't think that's going to happen, I take it.
3: Uh, unfortunately, folks are going to have to learn the hard ways. We now have 14 states and more than 200 cities that are saying that they're going to be net zero uh, electricity by 2050. That means a lot of wind and solar. And, um, you know, this is, uh, this is kind of crazy stuff. I like to ask audiences, I, s- I say to them, okay, which is the more environmentally power uh, plant? Uh, one that takes one unit of land to produce one unit of of electricity, or one that takes 100 units of land to produce one (laughs) unit of electricity. Yeah, You know, this should be uh, apparent, right? Except the one that only takes one unit of land, in that category is natural gas, nuclear, and coal. The ones that take 100 units of land to produce that one unit of electricity are solar, wind, and biomass. Solar (laughs) takes two... 119 times is, you know, a factor of 119, wind is is like 800, biomass 1,500. Uh, And a a comparison example is the Ivanpah Solar Facility in California and the Diablo Nuclear uh, Plant, Diablo Canyon Nuclear Plant also in California. The Diablo Canyon Facility produces 20 times the electricity output on one-fifth of the land. There's Mm -hmm. that 100 to 1 ratio. Um, So if if it wasn't for man-made global warming, nobody would say that wind and solar was environmentally friendly. There was a study done by um, uh, Princeton in 2020 called Net Zero America. And Princeton is a renewable fan. And they said, today we get about 11% of our electricity from wind and solar. They said, okay, by 2050, we're going to boost that to 50%. What would that take? 50% of our electricity from wind and solar. And they, they computed it would take 228,000 incremental square miles of land. That's an area bigger than Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kentucky, West Virginia, and Wisconsin. You would have to, <laughs> blank, would have to blanket the area of six states to produce that much wind and solar output. Wow. Now that's just another reason why this isn't going to happen. I mean, people are just going to say, this is crazy. We're not going to go do
1: that. Mm-hmm. Um and you might uh, remember another. Michael Michael Moore had that film, Planet of the Humans. Yeah, and right. There's a three-minute chunk, and I'll put this under the podcast when it goes up on Monday, a three-minute chunk okay. of this film that summarizes how terrible environmentally the construction of wind and solar plants are. Do you think he's exaggerating, yeah. or, or is this realistic?
3: <laughs> huge land and, and huge costs. And, and mm-hmm. the biggest issue is intermittency, and intermittency leads to blackouts and we've already seen that in the u.s we've seen uh, uh electricity blackouts i, I saw uh, an article just uh, earlier this week when they're they've now they were counting the deaths in texas texas had lethal blackouts in february of 2021 uh the power was out for 5 million people for uh more than three days 72 hours and they had uh, initially 200 people die. That, that count is now up to 700 people, they estimate. There's, a, there's a, a multi-class action lawsuit against ERCOT, the Energy Reliability, Electricity Reliability Organization of Texas, for uh, tens of billions of dollars. Uh, and what happened there is they had, a, they had a big cold snap, and the wind and solar weren't putting any output out, and all these people were killed. Mm -hmm. Uh, California has has had similar rolling blackouts and we're going to get there in other locations Uh, we have a lot of utilities that are saying well we're going to get rid of the gas we're going to get rid of the coal and we're going to put in all this wind and solar not not a good idea for for ratepayers.
1: yeah well Jay do you think that the Texas disaster has to happen over and over and over across the United States before people wake up
2: yes I think it does I'm hoping that the mega disaster in Europe this winter uh, will bring people to their knees. They'll see that things that are happening in Europe It's coming winter could happen in the United States and that it will uh, it'll be a warning shot to the United States to a large extent.
4: Uh-huh. Uh, yeah.
2: I, you know, I, I looked at Canada that way. In uh, in recent years, I think uh, Canada is a, uh, a bit, been a, a disaster in the <laughs> mi- making, and because Canada is closer to us, we see those things happening, and we say, "Okay, uh, it looks like those things are likely to happen here." We're more likely to not let those things happen to the extent mm-hmm. that we have that possibility and we do we, we, we do we see tiny little pockets of uh crazy energy in the the world that's going on around us and that we'll uh we'll see to it that we won't let it happen and then when it happens a little bit maybe not a lot we'll we'll back off from the brink so mm-hmm. to speak.
3: yeah my money's on New England, not Canada. Canada has the, their luxury; they get like fifty-five percent of their electricity from hydropower, which is really pretty good. But New England, New England is could be the next target here. For years, uh, New York State has blocked any pipelines, gas pipelines, going to New England. So they are now importing a lot of their gas from right. world markets. And okay. so, when you average it out, they're they're paying three times what the rest of the U.S. is. Matter of fact, they were importing gas from Russia. <laughs> Prior to the Ukraine thing, liquefied natural gas. And so we have we have 80% of the homes in the Northeast U.S. use natural gas, propane, or fuel oil for heating. And gas natural gas supplies more than half the electricity. Uh, look for that to have a real problem. If they don't have blackouts this year, they are going to have huge price increases in any case. They're going to mm-hmm. pay the highest prices in more than 25 years. Wow. Uh, so... So that's maybe the next target where people are going to have to learn a very tough lesson.
4: Well,
1: you know, one of the problems is the media covers up real reasons for things if they don't fit the politically correct narrative. You know, when the Texas uh, disaster happened, they said, oh, no, it's not wind and it's not wind power that did it. It's the natural gas failed. But they don't tell you that (laughs) wind was providing 58 percent of Texas's electricity a little before the storm hit. And as you said, it went to just about zero so yeah, right. wind was the cause, but they kept hiding it, you know. And we're seeing a similar thing in Canada with you know huge numbers of children in our hospitals with all kinds of virus, uh, respiratory uh, problems, and the flu, and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And and the reason, of course, is that they walk down the society so the kids don't develop their normal immunity. But the media, of course, cover it up. They cover it up and they say, oh, it's caused by something totally different. But so it'll be interesting to see when the European tragedy hits. And I don't think there's much doubt that it will. Will the media actually point, in your opinion, to the real cause? Yeah, I don't know. There
3: there are going to be no factories in Europe fairly soon. Anything that uses power is going to be shut down. So really a sad situation.
1: So, Jay, do you think the media will admit why Europe is in big trouble?
2: No, I don't, Tom i think uh, our nation as well as the vast majority of all nations will become communist countries and uh, nothing sensible will be done anymore leftists are taking over the world and we've seen it coming for 20 30 years and uh, we're just we're going to have to live with it
1: well Something positive I got to tell you two guys about, and that is ICSC has started, ICSC Canada has now started a new project called Climate Realism in Action. And this is where we actually train activists, brave people who are prepared to stand up against this, to go to debates between mayor candidates in the case of Ottawa, and to go to town councils and ask them really hard questions. And here in Ottawa, we actually had a huge success where the climate activist candidate who was leading in the debate was really put on the hot seat by some of the activists that were working with us. And anybody else, of course, who supported the city's ridiculous climate plan also looked foolish. And guess what? She lost. So we're hoping to expand this across uh, North America, actually across Canada and the United States, where we work with different groups to find activists who are prepared to go to the microphone in public meetings and say, this is ridiculous. You're going to just leave us freezing in the dark. So, you know, listeners, if you have, <laughs> if you have ideas as to cities that need to have activists contesting the local politicians, do contact me. You know, I'm at icsc.com.harris at gmail.com because we're looking for activists right now who are prepared to speak out. Because Steve, you know, and Jay, tell me what you think of this idea alinsky Saul alinsky wrote a book called rules for radicals and he showed how you can actually take over and they did that so we're saying okay let's use it on the conservative side what do you guys think of that
2: well i'm 100 percent for it 100 i
3: think there's a you know conservatives tend to be they you know they run their businesses they run their daily lives they tend not to there's sort of two types of people in this world, people that, that do things and people that want to tell people what to do. Right. <laughs> and unfortunately, it so seems that right. the on end, the, on the left side of things, they're all in the universities telling everybody what to do, and the the people that just want to live their lives and, and prosper um, get all these rules set for them on, on what car they have to drive and whether they can have a gas stove in their house and all sorts of other things, so Mm-hmm. Uh, it I think, Tom, you're doing a good thing. You really need to get uh, um, some regular people voices out there saying things like, hey, why do you want to raise my energy prices? Um, yeah. Some of those sort of questions need to be need to be posed to the uh, the people who are in charge of many
1: things. Yeah. And, Jay, you think it's a good idea to get average citizens up there in front of the audience at the microphone asking the candidates hard questions?
2: Yeah, I think it absolutely is. Mankind was, uh, was raised to be free, and uh, communism is anything but free. They seem to want to have their government uh, rule them and run their lives, and I think we have to point out the fact that these people like to have their lives run, like to uh, be run roughshod over, and they will uh will cotton to they will accept a very strong regime telling them what to do but i Mm -hmm. think normal human nature doesn't like that at all so i'm i'm confident you're right
1: yeah well i should tell you about one question that was called the atom bomb question where it completely sidetracked the mayor's debate here in ottawa they you know we had a mayor election Just back in October and uh, the lady went to the microphone we worked with her ahead of time so that she had her question really solid and she's talked about how the batteries that are used in electric vehicles have cobalt in them and cobalt comes from the Congo where thousands of children tens of thousands of children are mining the cobalt under terrible conditions and she said I'm a mother I'm a grandmother I don't want this to happen how are you at the city going to support this or not And the candidates were floored because, I mean, you can't say, you know, (laughs) and sound reasonable. Well, I don't care about the children. We're just going to have electric vehicles with the cobalt. (laughs) And similarly, they didn't want to say, well, I guess we shouldn't have those electric vehicles because of the children mining. So, I mean, it. People later said the question was like an atom bomb and all of a sudden the candidates all look like a bunch of dopes. So we want to do that in city after city across North America. So, yeah, anybody listening thinks that they'd like to see that in their area, let me know. You know, Steve and Jay, one of the most outrageous things about the Ottawa election is that the community TV station, that's Rogers TV, Channel 22, they were assigned the job of actually filming the debates and putting them up on the Internet. The third debate, questions that were asked, which made Catherine McKinney, the climate activist candidate for mayor, made her look bad. Those were actually edited out by Rogers TV, if you can imagine that. Fortunately, one of the volunteers who was working with ICSC Canada on this project recorded the whole of the Q&A of debate number three. And so he was able to have a record that I'll share with you now as to what was deleted by Rogers before it went on community television. Here's the first question asked by a lady who was actually working with us. We worked together to actually help create the question. And I also include the answer from Catherine McKenny, and you can see why it certainly would not have helped her candidacy.
6: My question is for Catherine, Mark, if you'd like to this down at A. When it was brought up in debate number one that Texas' reliance on wind power led to 700 deaths when wind failed just before the cold hit last year, Catherine said, referring to energy evolution, The key commitments for energy really are district energy, solar energy, and looking at ways of reducing greenhouse gases. I don't know that wind power takes precedence in it. That is deceptive and wrong. District energy doesn't address how power is generated. Ottawa's plans for wind power is about three times as much as solar. My question is, did you vote for a $57 billion plan without knowing what was in it?
2: (laughs)
0: Microphone for Catherine. Yeah, it's on. Thank you. Yes, I do support uh, Energy Evolution. I did. Uh, I did vote for it. It is uh, a plan that uh, gives us 39 uh, actions that will reduce greenhouse gases and give us a cleaner future. So I did. Do I? You know, think that every uh, every one of those 39 actions. Uh, will be, you know, what we know today compared to what we will know, you know, by 2040 and then 2050, that things will change. Of course they will. But we need a plan. And uh, yes, I do support it. Thank you.
1: You'll note that she didn't really answer the question at all. And it certainly didn't help her. That's for sure. The lady who asked that question was Mindy Thomas. And she is actually one of the organizers of the Freedom Movement in Canada. So that was really great to hear her speak out. The next question that Rogers TV edited out is the following, and I'm going to play the two answers. One is from Catherine McKinney, which again didn't make her look good, and the next one was from Nor Kadri. Nor Kadri was a professor from the University of Ottawa, a nice guy, but his answer was completely naive. I'm not going to play the whole thing. I'll just play part of it to hear what you think.
6: 57.4 billion dollars. In the first debate, I pointed out that Ottawa, if it reduced its emissions to net zero, would only affect the global temperature by one ten-thousandth of a degree Celsius. And the response I was given was that it's important because Ottawa would lead the world. And we're expected to believe that the world is going to follow Ottawa. China, the world's largest emitter, twice that of the USA, has made it crystal clear that they are not slowing down. They are not following Ottawa. They are actually massively increasing, for example, coal consumption. So, when essentially no one of magnitude is following us, why is Ottawa expected to pay billions and billions and billions of dollars in expenditures for statistically zero global effect? Your question is directed to Uh, candidates McKenney, Kadri, and Mike McGuire. You were not at that debate, but I'd love to hear what you have to say. Okay, candidate McKenney.
0: Thank you. Um, I guess I'll give the the same response. I do believe that we have to take action on climate. I do believe that we have to mitigate against uh, the the change in our climate. We have to find ways of adapting. And I support the uh, plan that has been developed by expertise. Uh, We've got to uh, protect our environment, nature, for us, for our children, moving forward. So thank you for your question again. So,
6: Again, I'm... That was my answer, that Ottawa will lead the world. Uh, There's COP 27 in Shalom Sheik, Egypt, coming in in November. And there will be a lot of people from around the world that are going to be there. And we need to go and make our points that climate change is serious. And while our contribution might be minimal, we are going to lead the world and let others join us. If China is not joining this year, they'll probably join in uh, when
0: they see they are isolated and other people around
1: the world that they're joining. Yeah, did you notice at the very end there, there was somebody who yelled out, not going to (laughs) happen. No wonder Rogers took it out. I mean, it made both of those candidates look really, really bad. And I should emphasize that that question, we worked with that fellow, Jay Neera, his name is. We worked with him. He was a People's Party of Canada candidate in the previous federal election. We worked with him to actually assemble that question. I wanted to play one more answer, and that's from Mike McGuire, a candidate for mayor. He gave a very good answer, but because this whole question and all the answers were censored out, the good answer did not (laughs) get aired as well. So as as I said, most people in Ottawa wouldn't have even known about it. And by the way, Mike McGuire was eliminated from the last debate by the organizers of the debate who are climate activists, if you can believe that. Anyway, here's Mr. McGuire's very sensible answer. Energy evolution is not, it's not possible. $57 billion
6: is more than we could possibly sustain. Even attempting to do this would render the city unlivable. It would also disproportionately target people at the very economic margins. Nothing about this is smart economically. And this kind of brings us back to the earlier question about climate and social justice. If you're victimizing people on the, and you're, you're sacrificing them to look virtuous to other countries, that's just the wrong approach completely. Let's also be clear, industrial wind turbines are economic and environmental disasters. They're yep. terrible for domestic and migratory bird populations, yep. domestic bat populations, they destroy the water table, the uh, the, the windmill veins are not um, uh, recyclable, they go in the landfill, yep. these things only last 20 years, and then you're back again looking for billions more to do something that was impossible in the first place. So no, it's not practical or economic. The only solution here is long-term investment in nuclear and making sure mass transit works to get
2: people out of their cars. Thank you.
1: And sadly, the citizens of Ottawa would not have heard that answer, even though it was the correct answer in almost all respects.
3: We have all these uh, wealthy nations telling uh, the developing world uh, you can't use coal, oil, and gas. You have to go to wind and solar, even though it's going to be insufficient for them. You know, we're cutting down forests in Sumatra and uh, so that we can ship uh, biofuels to Europe so they can run their cars. Uh, we're subsidizing electric vehicles. General taxpayers pay for electric vehicles that only the rich can afford to buy. We are paying anybody who puts solar cells on their roof a big feed-in tariff, or net metering, which, again, the other rate payers pay for, uh, there's a huge amount of these things going on that, that end up accruing to the wealthy folks of the world and not to uh, everyday people. Right. And uh, so it's, it's, it's a real tough situation, and, and people don't realize that. And unfortunately, many of the political leaders are for this, and, and it hurts the average citizen, raises his prices and, and
1: uh, uh, raises his taxes. just a
3: bad situation.
1: Well, it's interesting, Steve and Jay. The left always say they stand for social justice, you know, and protecting endangered species. But the green energy movement is is violating social justice. It's hurting the poor more than anybody, and it's destroying our environment. You know, one wind farm in California, the Altamont Pass, they kill 116 golden eagles per year. And so people say, well. How can they be killing it? Well, apparently these these wind farms, and Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, I understand they get something called a kill permit, so they can kill a certain number of endangered species because they're supposedly giving us environmentally friendly energy.
3: Yeah, they've been exempted. It's very, very sad. Another thing, too, environmental groups have traditionally been against mining and strip mining in a big way, but all these EVs uh, call for a massive amount of increase in mining. Um, of copper, of uh, cobalt, of nickel, of lithium, and mines are not environmentally friendly. So we have a big shift going on from a, uh, a fuel-intensive to a materials-intensive sort of an economy, uh, the shift to renewables, and it means uh, more environmental damage from mining.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, we have to wrap up now. I just had one quick question. We have about a minute to go. Steve, can you talk about the future for world energy where you see it going, and where it should go.
3: Well, I think the future is is not what people are expecting. Net zero is not going to be achieved. Citizens are going to push back against high electricity prices, gasoline and diesel vehicle bans, rising power outages, mandates to eliminate gas stoves. There aren't going to be enough batteries to to compensate for wind and solar intermittency we're not going to have enough renewable electricity to create enough green hydrogen to decarbonize our heavy industry. Uh, they want to run planes on used cooking oil. Well, there's not going to be enough used cooking oil around. Uh, so these these things are are just not going to occur. And eventually, people are going to push back. And um, I think we're going to get back to some more sensible energy policy. Unfortunately, folks are going to learn the hard way uh, with these energy shocks. The first one that we're seeing is in Europe.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so people have got to be prepared. You know, what, what do you think they should be doing? I mean, should they be uh, stocking up on food? Mm-hmm. you think it's going to get that bad in North America? Well, backup power systems would be nice. But,
3: uh, you know, who can afford uh, uh, to get a backup power system? Because there are going to be more blackouts. You know, yeah. I don't know. It's a tough situation. People are going to have to adjust
1: and, and wait for leaders and utilities to come back to what's sensible. Yeah. And speak out. I mean, people are going to have to speak out. I mean, we cannot lose this war, because if we do, we're going to see ourselves thrust back to the conditions of 150 years ago. And with 8 billion people on Earth, it sounds like a recipe for mega death. Don't you think, Steve?
3: Yeah, it could be could be big problems in in many, many places. But I think that uh, energy economics is going to win out here and eventually people are going to move back
1: to what's sensible. It's just going to be a little bit of pain, probably a few decades of pain on this. Mm, Yeah, exactly. Our guest today has been Steve Gorham, an electrical engineer, executive director of the Climate Science Coalition of America. And everybody get ready. He's got an amazing new book coming out, Green Breakdown, Becoming Renewable Energy Failure. We did a book review of that because it's not coming out to the second quarter of next year. So everybody have a look at the America Out Loud website at our book review of Steve's new book. Okay, so thanks for being on the show, Steve. Thank you, guys. Okay, well, this is Tom Harris and Dr. Jay Lair signing out from the other side of the story.